Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 26, Proverbs chapter 26. And if you need a Bible, uh, just get the attention of these brothers as they make their way to the back, and they'll get a Bible to you. And that Bible is marked at Proverbs 26, so you don't have to fumble around to find it. And also, it's our gift to you. So keep that, bring it back with you each week as we look at God's Word together. This morning we conclude our series in the book of Proverbs. Next week I'll begin a mini-series on the gospel that will be primarily from the book of Romans, just five messages that are on the central tenets of the gospel. Then on September the 19th, we will begin a new series in our worship hour on the book of Acts. Now since mid-April, we've been in the second major division of the book of Proverbs, which deals with many topics, the handling of which are to demonstrate the wisdom that the book speaks of. We've seen that wisdom, what wisdom looks like in the way we communicate, in the practice of discernment, in how and whether we deal with our past, in anger, in work, in friendships, in money, in honesty, in our speech, in how we relate to the government. And today, if you'll look at the top of the outline that you should have received on your, your way in, the title of today's message is Proverbs Potpourri. <laughs> That's because I'm going to look briefly at five more topics that Proverbs covers today in our final message in this book. So let's bow together and ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you again now for gathering us in your presence with your people. We thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you in song, worship you in giving back to you what you've entrusted, a portion of what you've entrusted to us, and now for the privilege of opening your word. Thank you for giving it to us as a light and a lamp. Lord, we pray that we will truly be instructed as we listen, as we appropriate, as we apply, and we go forth to better glorify you this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, in that outline to which I referred, I say first of all this. We should, according to Proverbs, reserve our speech for worthy people. And I say that because of what chapter 26 and verse 4 says. Verse 4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Now, most commentators say that this means that sometimes you answer a fool and sometimes you don't. It, it depends. Now, it's true that in Scripture, fools are not to be suffered gladly. Their foolishness and the divisiveness it causes is not worthy of your time and effort once they have shown themselves to be unteachable. And so, for example, the Apostle Paul said this in Titus chapter 3, avoid foolish controversies. Because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Now, practically, I have found by personal experience that ignoring someone who spouts off about how the world works is at times good for them and for you as well. It's good for them in that they don't get the audience that they crave but do not deserve. 
and it sometimes causes them to reform their ways because they don't like being ignored. Other times they just rage on more, but whatever their response, it's good for you to avoid such a person as it keeps you from getting entangled in their nonsense and the chaos that they often create. So the interpretation that says of these two seemingly contradictory verses, answer a fool in verse 4, do not answer a fool in verse 5, that sometimes you do and sometimes you don't, they are onto something important and it should be practiced. Sometimes you do answer, sometimes not. And wisdom is indeed needed to determine when to apply verse 4 and when to apply verse 5. The Jewish Talmud a rabbinic commentary dating back over 1600 years suggests that verse 4 can, pertains to foolish comments that can be ignored and verse 5 refers to erroneous ideas that have to be corrected. So one approach to the fool is that sometimes you answer, sometimes you don't, and after they've shown themselves to be unworthy of your time, you practically speaking cut them off as much as possible. Now, in some cases, that cutting them off is easier said than done. If the fool is your spouse, really, then it's not easy to simply ignore, and some foolish spouses will badger and even seek to intimidate to get the attention that they want. So much so that the Bible says this in Proverbs 21, better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Now remember, Proverbs is addressed to a son by his father, but if it was a father to a daughter, it could just as easily say, better to live on the, a roof than with an angry husband. Now the roof is probably a little guest room that would be built on the roof. We see examples of this in 1 Kings chapter 17, 2 Kings chapter 4. It would be cramped and lonely, but peaceful in avoiding strife. But, you don't seek to ignore that fool until after you have actually answered. What these verses are saying is that not sometimes you do, sometimes you don't, but rather both are saying that the fool has to be dealt with, just not in his way and not without correcting his statements. Verse 4 has to do with the manner in which you address the fool. It's saying, in effect, do answer just not in the manner that he addressed you. You see, you see this in the consequence of answering in verse 4, is that if you do answer the way he talked to you, then you will be, see it in verse 4, just like him. That is, if he comes at you, for example, yelling and screaming and insulting in an emotional rage or drunken or other characteristic ways of the fool, and you answer in kind, you're acting just like him. So you don't answer a fool in this way. You don't respond using his manner. It's not saying you don't answer. It's saying you don't answer that way. As the Bible says elsewhere, do not repay insult with insult. Verse 5 has to do with correcting what he says. It has to do with the content of what comes out of the fool's mouth. Verse 4 is about the manner, the way in which he said it. Verse 5 is about what he said. You must refute the fool's words and seek to, in effect, put him in his place. Otherwise, he'll continue his harmful talk, thinking he is wise and sharing his brilliance with others. 
depending on the situation, you may not always be able to correct foolishness. You hear it, you know the content is wrong, but you're in a meeting at work. And so you don't have the opportunity to do it at that time. But when you are able, you should seek to teach the fool a lesson and thereby help him and protect others from him or her. After you've done that, and you see that the person is divisive and unteachable, if you're able, you may have to choose not to engage, to distance yourself, because that interaction is unprofitable. And I would add that this applies to interactions on social media as well, and perhaps especially so. Your ability to communicate, friends, is a gift from God. So evaluate how you use it and on whom you use it. Reserve your speech for worthy people. I say secondly, reserve your body for your spouse. Will you turn back to chapter 6 in Proverbs, chapter 6. Now back in March, when we were in chapters 5 through 7 of Proverbs, two weeks out of three, the entire message was on the topic of sex. And I explained then that sex is a matter in which the effects linger because they can, they can consign one to a way of thinking for many years and they can ensnare in consequences that last far longer than the original act. So they're emphasized in Scripture for a very good reason. And so I'm talking about it again because God does again and again. I'm emphasizing it because Scripture does. And Scripture does so because sex can set you in a direction that will take you further and further in the wrong direction. Now, of course, I'm not going to repeat all that I said in those two messages here. I encourage you to listen to them at our website if you would benefit from that. The first deals with the biblical truth that sex is to be confined to marriage. And the second of those messages back in April, talks about the consequences of sexual sin and, and how to avoid those. Those were delivered, I said April, I'm sorry, March 7th and March 21st, March 7th, March 21, respectively. But for our purpose today, I want to remind you of how you can protect yourself from sexual sin and also offer hope if you're entrapped by it now. Verse 20, my son, Keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. Now that passage may remind some of you of another given by God to Moses in the law that God gave to Moses. After God gave the Ten Commandments, God said this, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So this is how important this is, the instruction that God is given, giving with regard to this issue of how we use our bodies and reserve those for our spouses. Verse 23, for this command is a lamp, this teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way to life. The Bible says through the psalmist, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. 
So the parents' teaching to their son in those early chapters of Proverbs is compared to God's law, to God's word, because that's what the parents' teaching is based on. So it must be followed for the child's own good, or really anyone at any age. Now notice how it continues in chapter 7 and verse 1. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your, uh, of your eye. Now the Hebrew word that's translated apple is literally the center of a thing. In verse 9 of chapter 7, it refers to the center or middle of the night, that is, intense darkness. The pupil is the center of the, center of the eye, and it's the most sensitive, and it's the most carefully guarded of the human body's exposed organs. And it's saying you should guard God's teachings with that same kind of diligence. You see, if God's truth, now hear this, if God's truth about humanity is central to your thinking, then you will not dehumanize another person by sexualizing them. Instead of looking at him or her in that debasing way, you'll look at it according to the wisdom that is being given to us in Proverbs and throughout the Word of God. You'll look at it in terms, others in terms of what the Bible says. Remember, your most powerful sex organ is your mind. And how and whether you control your mind will determine how you fare in our overly sexualized culture. And that self-control of the mind is an aspect of the Spirit's fruit. Remember what the Bible says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so because then the way you think about sex, the way you look at others and objectify them is one of the core problems in our sexualized culture, then replacing that with thinking truth about yourself and about others and about God is what will help you control your urges. Verse 3 of chapter 7 says, Bind them on your finger, fingers, write them on a tab tablet of your heart, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. You'll only find, friends, the right kind of horizontal relationship with another person when you first prioritize your vertical relationship with God. And so instead of seeking relationship illicitly, this is saying find your companionship in wisdom as your sister, as your relative. And in turn, verse 5, they will keep you from the adulterous woman from the wayward woman with her seductive words. So all of that was preparatory in Proverbs 7 to say that the word of God and its truths and valuing wisdom and appropriating wisdom is what's going to keep you from the adulterous woman and her seductive words. Now this is so important because sexual sin can become life-dominating. Some sins have a short lifespan. You commit them, but they don't necessarily have an afterlife. 
If you commit a, a sin of opportunity, it may not become a way of life or have long-term effects. I think I used this illustration back in March. Let's say a person in front of you in a cashier lane drops $20. You pick it up and you don't tell them about it. Later, you're convicted. You confess to the Lord, but you can't return the money, but you also never do it again. It's an example of a sin of opportunity. It's not a life-dominating sin. It's not okay, but it's not life-dominating. But some sins, by their nature, can and often do have a longer lifespan. And getting those wrong early means having to deal with them at length later. Sins in this life-dominating category continue. And they touch not just one area of life, but many. A life-dominating sin is like the hub of a, a wheel. And then the spokes go out from that and they touch a number of areas of life, personal life, relationships at home and elsewhere, work, finances. So, I say to you, if you are entangled in this potentially life-dominating sin, ask for help. We have resources in our resource center. And I recommend a ministry that's devoted to helping those who are entrapped by sexual sin. And this ministry also ministers to the spouses who have been wronged by it. It's called Pure Life Ministries. And you can go to their website, purelifeministries.org, and you'll find, you'll find help there. But hear this, dear friend. Though some sins are life-dominating, thanks be to God, no sin is life-defining for the Christian. They might be life-dominating, but no sin is life-defining for the Christian because you have the power if you belong to Christ and if you have His Spirit. You have power, divine power, in your struggle with sin. As Pastor Larry read earlier, you do not have to offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. Why? For sin shall no longer be your master. The Lord forgives and the Lord empowers. So reserve your speech for worthy people. Reserve your body for your spouse and reserve your mind for sobriety. Another topic that Proverbs deals with. It's another potentially life-dominating sin and it's found in Proverbs 23. Will you look at chapter 23 with me? Proverbs 23 <clears throat> And verse 29, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaints, who has needless bruises, who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Verse 33, your eyes will see strange sights. Your mind will imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, 
but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? It's saying that alcohol can cause emotional problems. In verse 29, that's the woe and the sorrow. And it can cause social problems. That's the strife and the complaints. And it can cause physical problems, bruises from fights or bumping into things while you're drunk, and bloodshot eyes, it says. And so this is a warning. This is what alcohol can do. This is what drunkenness does. Now, if you knew you could have just one, that would be one thing. Alcoholics know that's not true for them. But you don't know whether it's true for you until you actually try. So I've chosen not to try. It turns out that I have alcoholism in my family. So if I tried, then there's a decent chance that it would have an effect on me like it has on relatives of mine. I've chosen not to try. I recommend you don't either. But the Bible does not forbid wine, but rather drunkenness. So we don't make it a condition of membership, as that would go beyond what the Bible allows. But I can warn you as the Bible does, and this warning is very clear. Those who fail to heed the warning have the possibility of consequences, biting like a a viper, like a snake. It's saying it tasted good at first, Apparently, because in verse 31, it was smooth, and it was enticing to drink. It was sparkling in the cup, but the end can be devastating. Now, I don't know the smooth taste, personally, because as I said, I don't imbibe. Have not in my 59 years. I don't say that to boast in any way, only to say I'm thankful the Lord has protected me from it. Now, in the interest of full disclosure... I did accidentally take a drink once years ago when Kim and I were at a dinner with some friends and we were enjoying our time with them and after we wanted to hang around and talk. So I ordered something that I thought would be kind of a combination of coffee and dessert and Irish cream. And when it came, I was just holding forth and talking and I took a drink and then I immediately winced a bit because it burned my throat. Kim saw that, and she took a drink, and she almost spit it out, and she said loudly, that's alcohol. And I said to her, well, I don't drink, so I wouldn't know. And I still wonder how she knew. Now, the truth is, she's just smart enough to put two and two together, but I've toyed with that over the years saying maybe she's not been the teetotaler that I thought. But seriously, we just don't. And I recommend abstinence. In addition to the emotional, social, and physical problems, verse 33 says it causes mental problems too. Hallucinations and imagining confusing things. Drunkenness affects one's motor skills, So that when they walk, it feels like being on a ship going back and forth, according to verse 34. And verse 35 indicates the drunk is feeling no pain. And even in his drunken condition, his thoughts are still on the next 
chance to drink. Now, friends, just like your God-given mouth is to be used wisely, your body is to be used faithfully, your mind is to be reserved for sober use so that you can think God's thoughts after him. And as God's word said, you can set your mind on things above and you can pursue holiness with your renewed mind. And you can obey what the Bible says here in Philippians 4. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, do this, think about these things. We should allow nothing into our bodies that would impair our thinking. Drink, drugs. Now, some drugs are designed to repair our inability to think. I understand that. But I'm talking about recreational use of anything that would cloud the minds that the Lord has given us. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. And it's a terrible thing to waste even for a part of the day or night. So reserve your for worthy people, your body for your spouse, your mind for sobriety, and your best for your family. Reserve your best for your family. The best gift that you, mom and dad, can give your children is the model of a couple who obviously love each other. A child's human security comes from the stability that they, that they sense in their home. If that foundation is shaky, it will affect them in negative ways. Now, I know that some of my brothers and sisters have had their homes disrupted because a spouse left or is still around but is uncooperative and has no interest in spiritual growth. And so to you, I say you always need your church family, but especially when your own family is not the refuge for you and others that it was designed to be. Your church is a partnership with you, all of you families, in raising your children. And we partner with you, but we can only be effective in that partnership if you choose to take advantage of what we offer. Today we resume our second hour that's been on hiatus because of COVID for nearly a year and a half. Our second hour is an educational hour for all ages, Sunday school. Parents, are your children going to be in Sunday school? We're partnering with you to help you. We can only do that if you take advantage. Are your children going to be in Sunday school? Are your children going to participate with a priority on the things that happen within the groups that we have at church rather than all of the other things that you've signed them up for. So take advantage of Sunday school and then next month as we resume midweek and youth group. If you don't, then you're doing this, the raising of your children on an, an island and we're not able to help you in this immensely important task. And for those of you who are married, the health of your family's life begins with the health of your relationship. So we must see to that health. One way to help you do that, as we partner with you, is for you to attend our marriage retreat next month. And so 
you know, if you were to take your phone and to register for that right now, I wouldn't point you out. I wouldn't be offended that you're not listening to me. But don't put it off. If you're married, even if you're not married, if you're thinking about getting married, then I would encourage you to attend and we'll make appropriate accommodations for you. Now just a page back from Proverbs 23, if you'll turn to 22, chapter 22, verse 6, says famously, start children off on the way they should go and even when they are old they will not turn from it. Start them out well so that generally they stay on the path that you've directed. Now I say generally because Proverbs are not legal guarantees. But doing that, starting them out well, requires two things. It requires positive instruction and corrective discipline. And I say those two things because here's the way the New Testament puts it. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You have those two things, the training and instruction. The instruction is the positive encouragement. The training is the discipline. In fact, the word for training there refers to enforced learning or learning with structure or learning with some teeth in it. And discipline is required for a child because Proverbs 29 says, a child left undisciplined disgraces its mother. Verse 15 of the chapter you're in right now, verse 15 of chapter 22 says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. These passages mean that a child does not have it in his or herself to just turn out right. We all come into the world foolish. And if left to do what we want, we remain that way, and it becomes a bigger problem the bigger they become. Now, I don't have the time to talk about methods of discipline now. Spanking is one, and it works on some children, not so much on others. Again, we have resources for that to help you in our resource center. One of those is called Don't Make Me Count to Three, and I recommend it. But for now, I want you to see that both discipline and instruction are required in order to start a child out in the way they should go. If you have discipline without positive instruction, you're going to have a demoralized and embittered child. But if you have positive instruction without discipline, you're going to have an empowered child, but empowered to do his own thing. Now, I talked about some of this at our family camp in June. And this is, I think, my last commercial. I encourage you to make plans now to attend next year's so that you don't allow other things to crowd out your schedule and, and preempt it. It's always the same time. We go Father's Day afternoon, and then we're going to go through Thursday next year. That would be June 19 through 23. June 19 through 23. Next month, we're starting something called Entrusted with a Child's Heart. And it's for moms of a child of any age. It's going to be during the day, on a weekday. Child care is going to be provided for infant through age two. And then there'll be a program, a class for ages three through six. While the moms fellowship and go through this parenting material. So stay tuned for the exact date in September, but it's coming next month. So reserve your speech for worthy people, your body for your spouse, your mind for sobriety, your best for your family, last but not least, 
Reserve your awe for God. We turn finally to chapter 29. Chapter 29. Now way back in chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs, it began with the basis for every last thing it says. Chapter 1 in verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we saw then that the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. We do what he says because we love him. We're in awe of him. We revere him. But there is an awe and a reverence that competes with that. A reverence, an awe that should belong only to God. Verse 25 of chapter 29. Instead of fear of God, fear of man will prove to be a snare. So what is the fear of man? Well, an article I read explains it, saying, imagine you're driving to work, your favorite song is playing on the radio, you turn the music up, you drive a little faster, you put down your coffee, you're singing at the top of your lungs, I love this song you keep thinking. You never felt more free and alive, and that changes in a split second because you look over to your left and someone notices you singing. So you stop everything, you turn the music down, you go back to sipping your coffee. Even though you're never going to see that person again, you feel embarrassed and exposed. Now it's silly, but why do we feel embarrassed in those kinds of moments? The world calls it peer pressure, people-pleasing, codependency. The Bible calls it the fear of man. We revere, we hold in awe what others think of us. Biblical counselor Ed Welsh has written an entire book on the fear of man. I believe we have that in our resource center. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. And in it, he lists 14 questions to help you determine how you esteem people too highly. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Peer pressure is simply a euphemism for the fear of man. Are you overcommitted? Do you find it hard to say no when wisdom indicates that you should? You're a people pleaser, another euphemism for the fear of man. Do you need something from your spouse? Do you need your spouse to listen to you, respect you? Now, unless you understand the biblical parameters of marital commitment, your spouse will become one you, you fear, that you that you revere, your spouse will control you, your spouse will quietly take the place of God in your life, and if that person doesn't give me what I perceive that I need, then I can't carry on. Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? This, at least in the United States, is the most popular way the fear of other people is expressed. Do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? That sense of being exposed is an expression of the fear of man. Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? Do you feel empty or meaningless? Do you experience love hunger? If you need others to fill you, you're controlled by them. Do you get easily embarrassed? If so, people and their perceived opinions probably define you. You're afraid to have your picture taken because you'll be embarrassed of the way it looks. 
Do you ever lie, especially the so-called little white lies? What about cover-ups, where you're not technically lying with your mouth? Lying and other forms of living in the dark are usually ways to make ourselves look better before other people. Are you jealous of other people? Then you're controlled by them and their possessions. Do other people make you angry or depressed? Are they making you crazy? If so, they're probably the controlling center of your life. Just three more. Do you avoid people? If so, even though you might not say that you need people, you're still controlled by them. Aren't most diets, even whether ostensibly under the heading of health, dedicated to impressing others? The desire for the praise of man is one of the ways we exalt people over God. And lastly, have all of these descriptions missed the mark? When you compare yourself with other people, do you feel good about yourself? Perhaps the most dangerous form of the fear of man is the successful fear of man. Such people have more than others. They feel good about themselves, but their lives are still defined by other people, comparing yourself to them rather than being defined by God. Now that article that I mentioned earlier says this, so what do we do? Go back to the gospel. As I've heard someone say, if you are in Christ, you still might have a lot of things to improve, but you never have anything to prove. God's gospel frees you from the pressure of trying to measure up because Christ has already met God's requirements on your behalf. The only one that you should fear is the one who has set you free. So here's your take-home truth. We must use God's gifts, our speech, our bodies, our minds, our families, and our all, all of those gifts, we must use God's gifts for his purposes. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again that we have this privilege of looking to what you say in your word about these five important topics, important enough for you to not only say in your word, but to expound upon many times. And so help me, help us to take them seriously, to accord them the seriousness that they deserve. It's because we want to please you. It's because, Lord, you have given us new desires by your Holy Spirit. We want to accurately reflect you to those in our circle of, of influence and reflect you back to you, pleasing you with our lives. And so this week, Lord, help us then to put into action those things that apply to us today so that we can better represent you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand now for our closing song.